Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical foreign affairs issues, sometimes issues that don't make the headlines, but probably should. And we have in-depth conversations with thought leaders and world affairs decision makers who discuss their life and career with digressions about the historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. Visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. No journalist covered the ins and outs of the negotiations over the Iran nuclear deal as closely as Laura Rosen. She is a reporter with the Middle East news website Al Monitor, and in the negotiations that led up to the July 2015 deal, her reporting and high-volume Twitter feed were an essential resource to anyone who wanted to know the pulse of these negotiations. Well, that pulse may now be turning to a flatline after Donald Trump's announcement that the United States is withdrawing from the nuclear deal known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. So I wanted to reach out to Laura to get a sense of what happens next. And in this conversation, Laura explains the last few months of diplomacy around the deal in which Europe tried to engage the Trump administration in good faith trying to address some of the administration's concerns about the Iran deal only to you know, wind up with egg on their face. We also discuss how Iran and Europe is now reacting to the demise of this deal and more broadly how diplomacy on this issue may evolve. And I should say, this is a pretty high-octane conversation. Laura and I have known each other for many years. We were briefly colleagues years ago, and I've been following her work very closely. She's been on the podcast before, the first time. Incidentally, it was about a year before the JCPOA was signed when the negotiations in Vienna hit a critical juncture, and she spoke with me from the sidelines of those negotiations. And now here we are, four years later, talking about how a deal that was improbable from the start may soon unravel. As always, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can peruse our robust archives of conversations about topical and timeless issues in global affairs. You can also get in touch with me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and I do love hearing from you. And now here is my conversation with Laura Rosen. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I mean, for someone like me who spent a lot, you know, a week every month between 2013 and and when they got the deal in the summer of 2015, um, going to Geneva or Vienna where they were negotiating and sitting in the hallway in the, of hotels, you know, seeing them come in and out and, and really know how hard that kind of negotiation is. You know, it's been 
frustrating to see the Trump administration and not understand how hard how hard it was to get. And and you know, even if you just you know, I've been talking with the Europeans a lot the past four months as they have tried to negotiate with the Trump administration uh, a compromise to um, satisfy Trump's concerns about the deal in Iran policy more broadly. And, you know, they've been investing a ton of time with the Trump administration trying to meet, you know, his demands and for the Trump administration to then just reject it. You know, I mean, anyhow, it, it, anyhow, there are, Trump administration's views of how diplomacy works and seem quite different, I guess, from the negotiations and the diplomacy I saw that actually produced an agreement that for the first time restrained Iran's nuclear program. Did those so, European diplomats probably, like actually think that yeah. they were going to make headway with the Trump administration here? I mean, it seemed the writing was on the wall that he like needed and wanted to just, you know, just formally break from, from the, the treaty. The agreement, I should say. So I think that there was, I think even at the, um, they felt like the U.S. team that was trying to carry out Trump's instructions was negotiating in good faith. But I think that there was always a recognition on both the part of the European diplomats and the U.S. negotiators that Trump might not accept what they came up with anyhow. Does that make sense? Yeah, So they yeah, felt absolutely. like they, they were in good faith. They, and, and you could see, I don't know if you saw, there was a um, State Department background briefing. I was going to ask you about that, because I know you were on that same press call with Bolton as I was, but were you were you uh, at that State Department briefing no, as well? No, I wasn't. No, and I but I, but I read it. And um, it's and, nuts, by the way. Every, I'll post um, a link to it, because it's, it's a really revealing uh, yeah. transcript, I, I think. But go ahead, yeah. You know, you can. One of the things uh, one of the uh, State Department officials says in that is like, you know, we don't have a plan B because we've been focused up till now on getting plan A. And I think that's exactly almost verbatim what a, one of the European negotiators told us on Monday is that, you know, when 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 the British Foreign Secretary uh, came and was trying to do a last minute push, and and they were starting to get the sense like this isn't going to happen. You know, Trump's not going to accept it, and. So they had all been so focused on plan A at like number three level, the political director level and teams below that. And I think that's true of, of, um, of the people who are on that background, backgrounder at state mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. I mean, so basically the, the upshot you know, of, but Bolton, of yeah, but, Bolton ahead, yeah. sounded, but Bolton, you know, you, you were on that call. Um, the, the white house did, um, Bolton seems like, Oh, he's like, I'm going to get on the phone today with, with my European counterparts. And, you know, he seems, um, you know, not not flummoxed or whatever. Oh, he was downright you know, chipper on that planning. call. Yeah, he was downright chipper on that call. He was really happy. Oh my god! Say, How many times did he yeah, say we are not of part of the deal? We are out of the deal. We are yeah. out of the deal. He, yeah. he just repeated that. And I thought what okay. you tweeted. I thought what you tweeted was something I noticed too. That um, you know, when he was saying that was, oh, you know, we're doing the, uh, you know, Treasury's departments issuing the guidance for winding down. Uh, certain types of business, foreign business with Iran over the next 90 to 180 days. Um, but we're not going to do UN, but they're not going to, U.S. isn't going to pursue um, snack back of the UN sanctions, he said, because U.S. is getting out. And in a way, I think, um, without being an expert on this stuff, like some of your other uh, UN expert guests and yourself, 
um, that might be a good thing for the parties that want to keep the deal. Yeah, let me so maybe um, let me just back up and explain that for people who who uh, aren't yeah. familiar with like the vagaries of of Resolution twenty two thirty one, which enshrined the JCPOA. Um, basically, uh, there's like these snapback provisions. If a party to the deal thinks that Iran is cheating, um, it could. There are mechanisms by which it can um, engineer the reimposition of global sanctions against Iran. But by Bolton saying that they are no longer party to the JCPOA, they're no part of the deal, they no longer have that option to use the mechanisms of the dispute resolution um, uh, processes of the deal in order to reimpose those global sanctions. They just could, they're ignoring the deal. They're pretending like it doesn't exist. They, they are no longer part of it. Um, right. Um, yeah. Or sorry, go, go ahead. Uh, then I want to ask you another question. No, no. I mean, and then, and so, you know, I guess um, you saw the reaction after Trump's announcement that Iran and the five other powers um, who negotiated the deal said they're going to try to keep it. And Europeans said they were going to try to um, find ways to be able to make sure Iran can still derive um, economic uh, benefits from keeping the deal um, without the United States being in. So, um, and, 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 and Iran, I think, you know, Iran's president, uh, you know, said they would try to stay in it. And then the Supreme Leader made remarks, which Iranians have interpreted for me as as being that he's, you know, saying you can try to keep it with the with the Europeans. So so that actually brings me to my next question. So I know, you know, through your years of reporting on this, you've developed good sources in, in the uh, in Iran and, and among the Iranian diplomatic community. So I'm just kind of Curious to learn from you what you're hearing from those sources about how what, what Iran's next steps might be. So a few weeks ago, um, when the Iranian foreign minister was in New York um, speaking to journalists, um, I was up there and they were actually sounding much more negative than um, about what Iran might do. Um, talking about possibility of um, Iran even withdrawing from the nuclear non-proliferation was treaty. Was that posturing? Being the most extreme. Um, one analyst, uh, Suzanne Maloney at Brookings, who did a call Monday, um, thought that Iran at that point wanted to make sure that the U.S. and three European powers did not do a side deal. Um, that they, they, they wanted to head that off. Hmm. Um, and then a couple days before Trump's actual announcement, you started to see much more mild statements from Iran saying, well, we can try to keep the deal without the United States if, you know, Europe and Russia and China can make it worth our while. So it could be that their preference um, was to have the U.S. exit if Trump, if their preference, their, their first preference, I think, was for that Trump would keep the deal. Their second preference, I think, was what happened yesterday: that the U.S. is isolated, the U.S. gets out, and everybody else now tries hard to keep Iran in. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't want to have the U.S. and Europeans. They didn't want to have this compromise that the U.S. and Europeans have been working on um, 
work out. Yeah, because that would have ratcheted would have, up pressure you know, on them and, and brought in more sort of aspects of Iranian foreign policy into the, the deal, stuff that was specifically excluded in order to focus on... I'm not on sure the, exactly why they know. didn't, but I'm not sure why they didn't, but they, they, they seemed to want a, wanted it to be cleaner than that. Um, mm-hmm. And perhaps, you know, it might be useful to them if Trump's not going to stay in the deal for... Um, the Europeans to stop spending so much time, you know, meeting with the Americans on how they can toss on their policy to Iran and now spend a lot of time as they're pivoting to do um, to figure out what they need to do to keep Iran in the deal. Right. And, and have that U.S.-Europe wedge. So useful, you know, yeah, useful for Russia, useful for Iran. What are you? Why it's useful for U.S. Yeah, U.S. Well, what 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 are you hearing from former Obama administration officials, and probably even just you know just just um, bureaucrats at the State Department who helped negotiate this deal? Um, Like, like, are they just like despondent? I think um, the former negotiator Wendy Sherman did a call yesterday. And she did not sound despondent. I mean, they were still arguing and, there, you know, there's been a lot of making the case publicly um, for why the deal um, restrains Iran's nuclear program more than not having the deal. And um, they think that there's a lot of misinformation the Trump administration, especially Trump himself, has about the deal. I mean, you can tell he hasn't read it. And, he, you know, you can just tell he doesn't. You know, he keeps talking about things that aren't true. And um, so, you know, it didn't sound despondent to me. Um, I'm sure they're disappointed and frustrated, but um, you can see, you know, you could, as you were saying, you could see that this was probably going to come for a few months. And, you know, people have kind of talked themselves blue in the face a million times explaining what the deal's. Why, why the deal was better than no deal. And the Europeans had talked themselves blue in the face, telling the Trump administration that. And, you know, he just, what can you do at a certain point? He doesn't accept it. I think now there, maybe there's something um, mitigating despondency, which is, you know, to see what Europe can do and what the others can do to try to um, preserve the deal with Iran. Mm-hmm. And, and that, actually- you know, maybe the, maybe the deal, maybe, maybe the deal can last, um, you know, for some amount of time without the United States. And that actually brings you to maybe my, my next set of questions for you, which is, can can you explain just sort of mechanically what happens next in terms of the sanctions that the United States is, is reimposing? So I'm not an expert on this at all. And I know, um, so you'll forgive me if I, if I, um, you know, don't go into, into the yeah. weeds. Cause I don't, and, and I don't it's have the weeds get, weeds. it gets but really technical like, really quickly. There's, yeah. There's, there's energy. There's, um, the sanctions that were waived and lifted when the deal was reached um, um, involve. So the one that was the May 12th deadline was that um, countries and companies that use the central bank of Iran to purchase Iranian oil, um, they have to reduce by 20% their purchases of Iranian oil over 180 days. That that was uh, um, to not get sanctioned by the United States. So they have six months on that sanction. And this is under something that's uh, the National Defense Authorization Act. That was one set of sanctions. Then there was another set of sanctions that were coming due in July um, that 
um, some of those, I think, were ones that Obama was able to lift on his own when um, Iran entered the deal. And it was like, bank, I don't know, certain types of gold trading. There, there were certain types of transactions that were then Iran was permitted to do. Mm-hmm. So I think those are all being um, unwaved now, unlifted, reimposed. And, and there's a certain uh, wind-down period for them that the Treasury Department's issued guidance on. Mm-hmm. And, and basically, you know, what Bolton was saying on, on the conference call after President's announcement was that there is this kind of wind-down period, they're calling it, of, of between 90 days for one set and 180 days for, for another, in which companies that do business with Iran and in various of the uh, elements of the sanctioned sectors have that amount of time to sort of wind down their operations. And then you saw um, the newly installed um, German amba- U.S. ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell, incidentally. Bolton's old spokesperson at, at the United Nations um, say, uh, you know, Germans, you know, German companies better get out of Iran pretty quick or they'll face U.S. sanctions. And this, I think, brings me to like what I think might be like the single most pivotal element of this all, which is the degree to which the United States is willing to issue waivers to European companies uh, that will continue to do business in in Iran, or whether they'll strictly enforce those secondary sanctions uh, against those companies to prevent, say, these large multinational organizations like Total, the French oil giant, from simultaneously doing business in Iran and also, you know, accessing, you know, the U.S. financial institutions, which reaches everywhere in in the world. And that, I think, to me, is like the key thing to watch in in the coming months is like sort of how strictly the U.S. will impose and, and enforce that. Because I have to imagine that if the U.S., goes hard against those multinational companies and um, blocks them from doing business in the U.S. or threatens to, then they'll be forced to, to stop doing business in Iran. And then, you know, Europe won't be able to, to, to remain in the deal at all. Right. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's two different things going on. The, the, you know, even before Trump got out of the deal, um, even when Obama was still president, a lot of companies weren't going back to Iran because, um, the risk they felt the the risk was still too high. The um, the licenses from the Treasury Department, Office of Foreign Assets Control, were very slow in coming. It's very hard for um, private companies um, to be sure in Iran that your uh, entity you're involved with doesn't have some exposure to uh, sanctioned entities like the IRGC, right? So it was all you know already. You've seen the Iranians saying like, "Look, you weren't doing that much to." Um, let business come back to Iran anyhow. So, so now, you know, it becomes starker, but I think that, you know, Europe can try to stay on the deal. I think there's some things they can do. They can, um, you know, is there a way that you can create a financial institution or, or designate a certain financial institution that does not have exposure to the U S financial, you know, institutions that you could use for certain transactions, right? So hmm. I think that that's one idea and China, you know, and then that's just on the European side, then, you know, clearly there are a lot of Chinese companies and Russian companies that don't have exposure to U.S. financial institutions that might be willing to pick up the business. Um, you uh, might see Asian uh, purchasers uh, be able to get really good oil uh, deals with Iran and, you know, feel like they can get Iran to give them a better price as the price of oil is going up. So there might be ways that, um, it doesn't hurt Iran that badly initially. Um, 
And in terms of what, you know, the Trump administration is signaling about how much they want to uh, cajole versus um, penalize the European allies um, in persuading them to to get along with um, their tougher on Iran policy, um, you know, yeah. Anyhow, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sort of convinced that um, you know, with with Bolton there driving the the, the train, that they're going to be as hardline as as possible on this and and get very strict with their um uh and, and not issue too many waivers to those European multinationals. But we'll see. I mean, the one thing I'll say is like you know there could be a, a response in Iran of like you know the economy wasn't doing well. There were already protests in December. Um, from you know people um largely disappointed with the economy and um iran's economic problems are not primarily from um the sanctions it's you know there's a lot of internal reasons iran is having problems with its economy and um and people's expectations were already kind of disappointed that they didn't get as much benefits from the deal um as they might have hoped and so in some ways, when Trump plays the um, mean to Iran card, I think it almost makes it easier for Iranian leaders because now they have someone to blame, mm-hmm. right? Your economic problems are because Trump's doing this to you. Yeah. A lot like with Cuba, right? Like the, and, and, and so in some ways you're seeing, I think, probably a rallying around the flag and that this might actually help um, the Iranian. I mean, it's always easier to blame outsiders for your troubles and um, and they may even now get, you know, Iran may even have now Europe um, privately and, and somewhat publicly blaming the U.S. Um, for not honoring a deal that everyone says Iran is honoring. Can I go back to, to something you said about um, how, like, Europe and, and, and Asian countries might sort of create mechanisms to evade those secondary sanctions by the U.S.? I mean, to, to me, that that's so interesting just to the extent that you know the u.s financial system you know reaches every corner of the earth like the dollar is is used everywhere um to the extent that these um allies of the u.s and sometime adversaries in in asia create sort of systems to evade u.s secondary sanctions it would sort of i think dilute the power of those secondary sanctions uh, just to be used in, in other mechanisms and in other means for the U.S. to sort of pursue its interests. Which, I mean, this is just like another example of the U.S. kind of shooting itself in the foot with this, with this deal. Well, I think that's, I mean, you're getting, you're getting at the central weakness of, of the Trump administration's approach on this. I think now it's like when the Obama administration in 2012 was going to do the oil and banking sanctions, they spent months sending, you know, Bill Burns, their top diplomats, all around the world to, you know, Asia, to Europe, to India, to tell them like, you know, you're going to have to wind down your purchases of Iranian oil. This is where you might get it. Like, you know, they, they spent months doing the diplomacy on, on the sanctions and these Trump people are like, Oh no, you know, they were negotiating a compromise that Trump rejected up till the last minute. And then um, now they're like, oh, you know, now we'll start talking to the countries about, you know, they haven't done any of the preliminary diplomacy. They do not have the world with them. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That, it's all that diplomacy. It's not sexy. And it's, but like basically the Trump administration, when they really pressured Iran before Rouhani got elected and came to the table, um, that was like 2012 time period. Yeah, the Obama, um, yeah. Um, yeah. They, 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 uh, sorry, Obama, 
they actually got Iran, uh, they got the purchasers of Iranian oil within a year, within, within 180 days, several companies and countries. Uh, companies and countries went from whatever they were purchasing of Iranian oil to zero. And now, do you understand that they got the world to agree with the United States that Iran is the problem. We need to do these sanctions in order to get a diplomatic negoti- you know, negotiation to, to slow down the Iranian program, right? And the Trump people have uh, do not have any solidarity that the world thinks, with the exception of Israel and Saudi Arabia, you know, the world thinks that um, Iran was honoring the nuclear agreement, and and um, it's the U.S. that broke it. And so, you know, if countries don't want to, you know, the the cooperation on the sanctions is going to be what you're saying that you know they they're going to see what they can protect, they're going to see what they can get away with, and 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 you know, on some stuff with the U.S. they're going to have to fold, but on you know on other things they're going to see what they can get away with, and that's very different when your allies and and your partners are trying to work with you for a same diplomatic goal. So, it's, I, you know, Obama administration officials like Richard Nephew, who worked on the sanctions, say, you know, you're just never going to be able to get the kind of pressure that, that they were able to get in 2012 that brought Iran to the table. So how are you going to get this big deal that Trump's talking about where Trump, you know, basically Iran, you know, kind of surrenders or you know, with, with much less pressure. They just don't see how the logic of that works. Can, can I ask just, just to wind up, um, what next are, are you looking for in terms of like indicators of, of how the diplomacy around this will fall out or how things will shake out in Europe or, or Iran? Like, like what are some next steps that you're looking for, that you're looking towards? So Iran Foreign Minister Zarif said that he would be going the next week or two to meet with the Europeans and the other parties to see what they're going to offer to try to keep Iran in the deal without the United States. So I would look for the signals coming out of that meeting, um, um, you know, of how much the other countries are encouraging Iran and showing that they're making a good faith effort um, to make sure Iran can still get economic benefits from the deal if it if it stays. Um, and then on the other end, I would look for um, as the U.S. tries to get the Europeans to help them pressure Iran to get a bigger deal. If the Europeans, you know, what signals they're giving about how um, uh, chilly they are to the U.S. Uh, overtures or, you know, if on the other hand, they um, continue to, to say that they're committed to working with the United States to, to try to get this bigger deal. All right. Well, well, Laura, thank you so much for helping. Thanks, make Mark. Sense of this all. Okay. All right. Bye. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Bye. 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 All right. Big thank you to Laura for uh, speaking with me on on such short notice. Um, you know, one thing I didn't bring up in this conversation, but that I've written about on Twitter and on UN Dispatch is. You know, that this deal uh, is not just sort of a deal between the U.S. and and Iran. It's a deal of the U.N. Security Council. And what makes this, I think, to me so diplomatically dangerous, what what the Trump administration has done, is that basically the U.S. has decided to ignore a Security Council resolution that it itself endorsed just, you know, three years uh, ago. And, you know, this, I think, points to a core challenge of the Security Council, which is basically that, you know, a resolution that the council passes is only, you know, as good as the ability, the willingness of countries around the world to implement it. 
So, for example, you have like a sanctions regime against Sudan or, or North Korea, and you know the Security Council can write the piece of paper that uh, announces that sanctions resolution, but it's up to other countries in the world and every country in the world to enforce those sanctions. And they do so because they feel that the Security Council is a credible international player. And now you have a permanent member of the Security Council that is ignoring its own resolution. And that, I think, just in general erodes the credibility of the Security Council, which could really come back to bite the United States in the rear in the coming years when it wants other countries to comply with Security Council resolutions. Anyway, that's just one of the many uh, potential elements of, of diplomatic fallout of this decision. And, you know, there will be many more over the years and over the months as, as, um, things evolve. All right. Um, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.